is funny, but it, it's more so just like one of those like really intimate stories about Big that I just never heard before. And it's just like Big got, got basically halfway through uh, the chronic and he was like, dog, I got to go home. He's like, if, if, if this is what music is going to sound like moving forward, he was like, I got to step my game up. He was like, because everything that comes out after this has to be just as good, if not better than this. Other than that, you don't need to release music. He was like, I got to step my game up. What's going on, everybody? And welcome back to another episode of Dear Culture Podcast here on the Real Black Podcast Network. I am your host, Panama Jackson, and you are part or, or listening into a part of our Black Music Month, our June suite of discussions where everything is focusing on black music, where we're talking about, uh, if you're here, you've already heard a conversation about Michael Jackson's albums versus Janet Jackson's albums. I mean, you, you've heard us kind of have discussions that we might have amongst ourselves, or at least ones that I have amongst my homies. But one thing we're also going to do, and what we're going to do today is have a discussion about a book about black music for Black Music Month by one of I'm going to go ahead and say it. He's, as far as I'm concerned, the GOAT rapper of all time. And we're going to do that with my homie, longtime friend, somebody I've known more as a writer longer than I've known him in person because I've been following him forever. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to get into that. Uh, but today we're joined by friend, the homie, the author, the podcaster. We're going to get into all that. Justin Tinsley. What's going on, brother? How you doing today? My guy, it is a true, true honor to be here talking to you, man. I've been looking forward to this. Listen, I'm I'm excited. I got to get your bio out here because people need to know who I'm talking to. If <laughs> It's probably a whole lot of if you know, you know happening here because people see your name, they already know. But we got to give everybody the proper respect of their bio, dropping it. And um, your bio is very impressive. And I can't wait to talk more about this. We're going to get into that before we start talking about the actual book. But sure. Let me let me let me give you the the official bio here. So Justin Tinsley is the senior sports and culture writer with ESPN Disney's Anscape, which was formerly the Undefeated. Um, his work lives at the intersection of sports, race, and culture. Tons of hip hop stuff, obviously, because hip hop lives at the intersection of of culture, pop culture, sports, all of that stuff meets here in the middle. Um, storytelling which is what brings us here today, is the, mo is the most important element of Justin's bag. He's the author of the recently released biography of the Notorious Big, It Was All a Dream, Biggie and the World That Made Him. Uh, last year, he worked alongside Dwayne Wade, providing editorial direction in the future Hall of Famer's photographic memoir, Dwayne, which I also own. Yeah. Uh, I like to support the homies. I got to make sure I support all my people doing amazing oh, things. Uh, and I'm at the point in my yeah. life I'm at the point in my life where, amazingly, so many people I know are doing amazing things. Uh, he's also the host of King of Crenshaw, a multi-episode ESPN 30 for 30 podcast on the late Nipsey Hussle's deep brotherhood with several NBA players. And you can also find Justin as a weekly panelist on ESPN's long-running sports debate show, Around the Horn. Give it up. Virtual give it up for, for, for Justin Tinsley. My man is doing literally everything you can possibly do. My man, yeah, I'm I'm trying to do everything, trying to. You you, how does it feel hearing your bio? You've been, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time now, and I know you're making the circuit, you're making the run around. Like when people do bios and talk about all the stuff that you do, like how does that feel hearing about all these like tremendous, amazing things at this point? Yo, know, it's it's crazy because I definitely remember a time where I was like, man, I just want to get paid to write. You know, I just want to, you know, I want to get paid doing something that I love to do. And then, you know, to hear it all, you know, read out like that. And it's just like, damn, man. How did you get here? Like, I've known you. My first introduction to you was obviously through the smoking section. The sure. site started by the homie John Gotti. I remember reading that site. It was one of my favorite uh, hip hop but culture sites uh, as a writer early on. I got to know. I mean, there's a ton of writers and people that I'm friends with now who all came from that space. Sure. And I'm, you know, I don't know that I ever told Gotti this. I'm like, dude, you were like the you were like the the perfect curator of the culture at the time back then. Because I think about all the people that were there who have gone on to do amazing things, yourself, David Dennis, you know, and and you guys are kind of in a funny way linked at the hip nowadays yeah. because of because of y'all book releases, but we'll get yeah. to that. But how did how did you even get there? Like what's what's the beginning of the Justin Tinsley writing journey? Man, how much time do we have? It was kind of one of those things where when I was, I went to school at Hampton University and like my senior year there, I was the co-sports editor, but I also wrote a lot about music and things of that nature. And 
at Hampton, I was always known as the dude who had the new the new music. So whether it was a new okay. Lil Wayne mixtape, whether it was you know the Dream or T Pain dropping something new, and I had it early, and like people would always come to me for it. And so it was easy getting my friends new music when we were all on campus together. But once we graduated, we dispersed around the country. And my senior year at Hampton, I took an elective to show me how to like build a website. And so when I was living in, I moved to Chicago after I graduated from Hampton because I thought I had a job, which got cut before I started it. Um, if you, This is 2008. So we remember what the country was like in 2008. The recession was uh, in full swing. Right. And so I couldn't find a job. And uh, to, you know, past time while I was basically applying for jobs at my apartment in Chicago, I, w- I would just post music on my blog and I would give like little blurbs about what each, you know, mixtape or song was about. And one day one of my homeboys called me and he was like, yo, Tins, like, I really like what you're doing with the website. I go there every day to, you know, get my music fix or whatnot. And he said, but yo, I got an idea for you. And I'm like, what's up? He was like, you should post less music, but you should write more about the music that you do post. And I'm like, that don't make any sense. Like, why would I do that? Like, that, that that feels like I'm wasting my time. And then, you know, leave it to your homeboys to check you, man. He was like, it ain't like right. you got a job. You got plenty of time. I'm like, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah. And so, you free. You got some time on your hands. A lot of time on my hands. And so I started doing it. And I'm like, yo, this is pretty cool. I kind of I kind of like doing this. And, you know, over time, I, I, I built another website uh, of my own um that i just started posting more and i would write more about like you know the things that i did post i I would post less but but do like my homeboy said and that kind of parlayed that kind of snowballed into you know i was writing with different people uh karen civil and then a couple of months later i saw the smoking section which was a site i always read because even back when i was in college i thought the smoking section that was like my version of like rolling stone or york times or whatever these you like you know pristine publications were like and I started we're looking for new writers and I applied and you know one thing led to another and they they basically accepted me in and Gotti told me from day one he was like I don't care what you write about just you know what I mean make it dope and we'll, we'll I'll take care of the rest he literally told me that I'll take care of the rest and once I was on there man I was like yo I, I gotta become like one of the more known writers here I want I want my voice to get out there and I just used the smoking section as a means to just basically like chisel away at finding my own voice, finding the perspectives that I love to write about sports and music and pop culture and politics and whatever, whatever topics that interest me. Cause Gotti didn't give me like a lane to stick in. He basically said, go create your own lane. And I did that over the years. And I just saw, I saw myself improving. And, but you know, Gotti would also tell us to like, look out for other people, not look out because oh their competition, but like look out for these people because they're dope. And they're doing great things, and that's how I found out about uh, VSB. I was, and then I read. It. I'm like, yo, this. I'm like, this shit is fire. Like, I read. It. I was like, it's like I'm not even reading. It's like I'm listening to them talk, but reading their words while they do it. And I'm like, damn. All right, these dudes is dope. I gotta step my game up because I need my stuff to read like theirs reads. And so that's how I met you. That's how I met Damon. And it, it just fostered like a, a this this like online brotherhood because because we hadn't met at that point in time. Yeah. And true. it was it was cool, like the community we built. Like we would always link back and forth to each other just to, you know, drive traffic e- each way. And so I kept freelancing, I kept building, you know, my connections up through there. And to make a long story much shorter, this is uh homecoming 2014 at Hampton. And uh, we had like an alumni day party in our student center ballroom, which is wild because we never had day parties in the ballroom at Hampton. We damn sure didn't have alcohol in the student center ballroom. So we were, we were right. It's, a, it's still an HBCU, yeah, it's an right? H- we don't do you that. You don't do that. You do that off campus. But um, we, we, I was in there and one of my uh, older frat brothers came up to me and he was like, hey, Justin, do you mind if I introduce you to somebody at ESPN? I'm a big fan of your work. And I'm like, Hmm, that's how I know you've had one too many because you're asking me, can you introduce somebody at ESPN to me? Should be the other way around. But I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do it. 
he didn't do it that day. But when I was driving back to work uh, that next morning, at the time I was working at the housing authority in Richmond, Virginia, working with the different housing okay. projects in the city. And something told me when I was driving up there, I was like, man, let me hit Fred up and see what he's talking about. Uh, his friend was, uh, she was, she's a Hampton grad herself. And at the time she was Mike Wilbon's executive assistant. And she was like, send me some of your writing samples. I sent her some two weeks later. She was like, somebody ESPN want to reach out to you. They're forming this site around, you know, the black gays and they're trying to get young black writers on there. And they like what you wrote. I'm like, for real. And I lied to you not Panama. Like that was November, 2014 by January 5th, 2015. I had a one-way flight from Richmond, Virginia to to Los Angeles. And that's how my career at ESPN started. Dude, that's crazy. Well-deserved. I mean, listen, as somebody who's been reading your work since, I don't know if I was there on day one. I don't know. I just know, I remember at some point, your writing on the smoking session, smoking section was something that I always looked forward to, right? Yo, yo your takes on hip-hop, the sports stuff, the culture, like, you know, you were always somebody who I looked out for. Your name started to be a singular name. Like, it was like Justin Tinsley. Like, I knew you as Justin Tinsley, the writer, who was a part of these other things. That's so, love, that I mean, that's, look, that's fascinating and amazing. And, look, I, I'm glad you worked on getting better because it clearly worked out for you. <laughs> it puts you in these positions where you're doing, I mean, look, around the horn now, which I, I love. Like, I love seeing my homies on TV, bro. It, like, it's, it's, just, it's, it's still surreal, like. Yeah, I mean, it got to be surreal for you and everybody in your family yeah. who's like, you know, it's, it's going to get to a point where they're so used to seeing you on TV, it ain't going to phase nobody. But I hope that's a long time you know. from now. Like, it's, it still trips me out. I, I tell everybody, man, I'm on at every barbershop, bar, and airport. I don't know I don't know where else I'm on at, but I know I'm at every one of those locations, man. And man. look, you helped me more than you probably realize just in my journey. And, you know, I, I hope I can say uh, the same for you. You know what I mean? Like, it, seriously, you yeah. were an inspiration. You are an inspiration. Forget the work. Like, Appreciate that, you know bro. I, mean? so I, I thank you, man. Like, I, I, I don't even remember when day one was, but I just know you. You've been there for a long, 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 long time. Yeah, man. And um, it's, you know, that you're an inspiration in the sense, especially because for one, you wrote a book on. I already said earlier, like probably my favorite rapper. Like, I, I actually have this debate, and I, I had to come. Yeah have a heart to heart with myself about the fact that I genuinely think Biggie is the goat. So when I saw that you were writing this book, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Justin Tinsley is writing a biography on Biggie. Yeah. Hold on. And then when I saw when it was coming out, May of 20, May of 2022. So right around the 50th birthday. Yeah. So wait a minute, this is a big cultural moment and event. Yeah, bro. How did this even come to be? Like, how did you get to that point? How did the how did Justin Tinsley writing this Biggie biography come to be? Yo, it's so it's so wild, man. Like, cause you know the the theme of the conversation so far has just been like you just working, working, working. You eventually gonna put yourself at the right place at the right time. And I, I would I would right. venture to say that it's kind of like the same with this book. Um, so by the fall of 2019, you know I, I I've you know established my 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 name, at least with the undefeated, which was named at the time. Like, all right, cool. I, I've established my name here. I feel good about where my name is. I, I feel, I think people recognize my name and they, they recognize my name with like good work. And so I'm just going through my Gmail one day. Right. And you know, you know how it is. You're just deleting spam. It's like, whatever. I don't need this. Right. I come across this, this, this uh, email and I actually looked it up the other day in preparation for this conversation. Cause I, I really wanted to know, like, what is the literal like day one, moment one, second one of how this entire journey began? Uh, I get an email and the subject line says Biggie book. And I'm like, Biggie book. I'm like, huh? Just says Biggie yeah, book? Biggie book. I'm like, I, I, That's I'm awesome. like, I don't know of any Biggie books. Because I would have deleted yeah, that. I almost did. I almost did. But something was like, you know what, Justin? Just open it and see what it says. And I opened it, and it it was from the gentleman who eventually became my editor on the book. His name is Jameson Stoles, and he worked. He obviously works at Abrams Press, Abrams Books, and he reached out and he was like, "Look, I know this is a shot in the dark. I know I know this is you know um, not the common way for these things to go, um, but you come highly recommended from some people who I work with, and I've read your work, especially on Biggie Smalls, and I wanted to know if you would be interested." and writing a book for Abrams 
uh, a biography of Biggie that will come out around the time of his 50th birthday. And I'm like, this is wild because everything I knew about the book publishing world is you, I come up with the idea and I pitch it to you, Panama, right. and then you decide if you want to, you know, take take the next steps. I'm like, I've never thought I would have somebody approach me about a book, especially a book on somebody like Biggie Smalls. And I'm like, so I, I do my research and I eventually signed the contracts in, you know, late January 2020. And I'm like, yo, this is crazy. Like, I'm about to write a book on Biggie. And then, you know, after the the new car smell, you know, goes away and it's like, damn. Well, I can't give the first half of this check back because I had to use that on some stuff that I had to pay off. It just in my own personal world. Like, so I really got to do this book now. And the one question hit me and I'm like, damn. Okay. What do I tell people about Biggie Smalls that they don't already know? Because at this point, he's like a folk hero. Like in so many, you know, documentaries, books about the investigation behind his murder and all those things. Have been written, and I and, and I still am a big fan of Chael Hadari Coker's original bi- Biggie biography, Unbelievable. Right. I think that's an incredible book, and it is. Uh, it is. Yeah, I it's, agree. it's phenomenal. It definitely helped me out a lot in my process. And uh, he was actually one of the first people I talked to once I signed the contract. And I was nervous because one, he knew Big personally, like you know, Big loved Chael, and he told Chael once, like, I want you to be my Alex Haley. And I'm like, okay, well, that's no pressure at all, Tins. No pressure at all. And, you know, Chow, he he hit me back and he was like, yo, I'm so happy for you. I'm so proud of you. There definitely needs to be another big biography. Um, one written in the vein that isn't like a who killed him. You know what I mean? And here are the 8,000 conspiracies behind that. Obviously, you talk about that stuff in the book. But uh, he, when he gave me like his blessing and his cosign, I was like, all right, I can do this. And so I booked all this travel to Atlanta where he had ties. Obviously, I was going to spend some time in Brooklyn, L.A., Chicago. I did I did all of that in February 2020. I booked all that travel. If you know the history of the world of the last two years, you know exactly what happens in a couple of weeks. And yes. I ain't going to lie to you not, man. The, the entire book was researched, um, interviewed, reported and written basically in quarantine. So this thing about- Wow. All right, let's, let's hold that thought. Well, I wanna, I wanna dig more into that. Let, let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna talk more about like how you put this book together because our, it's fascinating. Like I, I genuinely am enjoying it, but let's, let's take a quick break here on Dear Culture. We're gonna come right back with Justin Tinsley talking about it was all a dream, Biggie and the world that made him here on the Griot Black Podcast Network. The 80s gave us unforgettable songs from Bob Marley, De La Soul, and Public Enemy. I'm a black man, and I can never be a veteran. Being Black, the 80s is a podcast docuseries hosted by me, Torre, looking at the most important issues of the 80s through the songs of the decade. A decade when crack kingpins controlled the streets, but lost their humanity. You couldn't be like those soft, smiling, happy-go-lucky drug dealers. You had to suppress that. It was a time when disco was part of gay liberation. It provided the information to counter narratives that were given to gay people by the straight world. This is the funkiest history class you'll ever take. Join me, Torre, for Being Black the 80s on the Griot Black Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture with Justin Tinsley talking about it was all a dream, uh, Biggie and the world that made him, a new book about the notorious B.I.G., Christopher Wallace. And this book really is about both because there's a lot of discussion about both Biggie and Christopher Wallace and the two worlds they occupied and where they meshed and where they didn't um, all through this book. And you were just telling us before the break about how you had to do this entire book in quarantine. And that's interesting because... I mean, this book is like a culmination of a ton of stuff. I think I think Shayo's book came out in like 2003. Yeah, yeah, it was it was early, early in the 2000s. So this is like almost 20 yep. years later. 
that you are bringing back. Uh, you're retelling a story. And you mentioned something earlier about what were you going to add to the conversation effectively about Biggie. So I really want to know more about that because when I'm when I'm reading this book, I'm like, I know almost all of this stuff, but you did you do have stuff in there that's brand new, right? Like I, I thought a lot of the Tupac information amazingly was still stuff that I didn't really know, like some of the specifics. Um, but how do you retell a story that has had yeah. documentaries, a movie, books? podcasts true crime um like miniseries i mean literally everything that you can do with the biggie story has been done in some way yeah. shape or form like how do you add to that conversation yeah that was, that was a, a daunting question that i had so i had to get out of my own head like the first i'll probably say like two weeks of actually like really working on this book I didn't really get anything done because i was in my head the entire time i was like yo i've gotten myself into something that I now I can't back out of and I'm not going to release anything that's half-assed. So I was like, I have right. to figure this out. And right. I, got, I just got out of my head. I'm like, look, you, you're going to do it. You're going to do it to the dopest extent imaginable that you can. And um, something that, that really, really, uh, that really kind of gave me the inspiration while I was doing it was when I was reading Valetta, uh, Valetta Wallace's memoir um, that came out in like 2005. And she was talking about how um, while she was dating, you know, Biggie's uh, biological father, um, one of their first dates was in 1971 to go see uh, Shaft. Like he took her to the movies to go see Shaft. And I'm like, damn, 1971, Biggie was born in 72. So she got pregnant probably like not too long after that. I'm like 71. I'm like, right. Damn. Afeni beat her case in May of 1971 and had Pac in June of 1971. And like, damn, you know, Muhammad Ali is just uh, coming back off his uh, exile. Marvin Gaye releases, right. like, what's going on? I'm like, right. yo, that's it. And hence, you'll see the title Biggie in the World That Made Him. I'm like, yo. Obviously, you yep. tell Biggie's life story front to back, life to death, and you know thereafter. Well, you're going to have the parts that everybody knows in there, but like if you could contextualize the world around him and, and maybe uh, forces that were in play even before he was born, and forces that he probably didn't really know much about, just like growing up, it makes some of the the reasoning for his own decisions, especially as a, as a young boy and a teenager, it, it it all makes it make sense. So. You know, Valletta Wallace saying like, oh, I want to move to America because it's the land of opportunity and it's so great. But her home, her main influence, her main uh, knowledge about America are just these brochures that she's reading at a travel agency that she's working at. Then when she gets to America, she realizes, wait a minute, it's nothing like these brochures are saying. And so that that honestly, Panama, that helped me contextualize so much stuff. And I felt like um, it would help me tell the Christopher Wallace story like that much better because the big the biggie story, as you said, in so many ways, it's been it's been done and it's been it's been done in amazing ways and it's been done in some not so amazing ways over the years. Right. Uh, I wouldn't mind the teeter towards the the amazing and not the not so amazing, but uh, yeah, that was that was once I got that idea in my head. And obviously you, you've you read a, a, a great portion of the book and you can see how it weaves in from his life to like what the hell's going yep. on in America uh, around this time. And, you know, in my head, I was like, oh, this is going to like contextualize so much about his life that, you know, about events about his life that a lot of people already knew about. But then when you place it in, in reference to what the hell was going on in, in the world and definitely America at this point, maybe it'll give them a new prism to view christopher wallace and biggie smalls under so that was my reasoning for doing that and it's clear too because as soon as i started reading the book i was like oh we're gonna like look at the world the, the world that made him it made very clear sense I was like okay we're starting with where america was at this time i saw all the points you mentioned yeah. the muhammad ali yeah. stuff everything like as i'm reading even bill clinton yeah. like the drug wars that happened even the inception of the mm -hmm. the war on drugs and how that was basically like a pivot from the common sense statements that were being made by people that were around the president at the time, not Clinton, but you know, prior to that, it's like, it was really interesting because it does set in motion this idea that 
all these things are interconnected, right? Like none of this stuff is just happening in a vacuum. Like the like how yep. Valletta gets to America, the decisions Biggie's making in Brooklyn, what Brooklyn looks like at the time, how like hip hop comes into play and how like Puffy, Puffy's this, Puffy's own family, right? Like you get into all that other stuff. And it's interesting because again, these are all, a lot of this stuff is things that I know, but putting it all in one place and making it one cohesive story that weaves through the story for Biggie or Christopher Wallace here, I think that was really well done. And I do think it did add something new to the story. Like this is the kind of book that honestly, I think you could use in a college course on Biggie, which I, I don't know that there's a ton of those at this yeah. point. Like there's classes on Pac. Yeah, but there should be like, there should be classes on Biggie. So I'm like, oh, you can use this contextualizing Biggie yeah, in an academic sense. I appreciate like, I that. that was really and, you know, well done. I, I wanted to do that. And I wanted to present Biggie in, in that light because I, I felt he was deserving of it. Obviously, you know, I'm a huge Tupac fan as well. And I understand uh, why Tupac's life and definitely his works are deserving to be put in there. But I also felt Biggie is deserving as well. He's not just the, the laid back guy that likes to have a, a, a great time and ladies man and all that. And, he is all of that. Don't get it twisted. But, you know, but like when you, and you know, when people read the book and when you, when you realize that ready to die came out on September 13th, 1994 and literally the same day, the 94 crime bill was passed. Like they, these things literally happened on the same day and they, they're polar opposites of one another. And once you start to understand the deeper context about that crime bill and you go back and re-listen to ready to die, like you hear that album completely differently now because it's not, as you just said, Biggie, just like your life, just like my life, just like anybody else's life, they never happen in just a vacuum. You know, Biggie's life story would never be about just Christopher Wallace. It's going to be about the people around him, the, the, the opportunities that were in front of him, the opportunities that were taken away from him. And, you know, some beyond his control, some within his control. And I felt like if I could do that, I could paint Biggie Smalls in like this, this different light that we haven't seen. And especially for, um, you know, people like you and I, we remember Biggie in real time. And we remember where we were when, you know, he, he passed and how, you know, gaping of a hole that was. But I mean, it's been 25 years. So there's a lot of people who weren't even alive when, you know, he lost his life. So I hope when they pick this book up, they'll they'll have pretty much the same understanding that you had like oh wow like it wasn't just him making music and getting all this you know adulation and he beefed with Tupac and then he died in a tragic manner no like his life was so much more than what those you know headlines made it made it to be and uh once you start looking at the world around him then you will really understand the, the true definitive picture of what I believe Christopher Wallace represents and what biggie smalls represents was it easy to get everybody to participate no no uh, i'm it i'm it wasn't incredibly difficult i knew early on like trying to get the estate uh would be difficult you know uh his mother and you know people like super super close to him whether it be faith and Lil kim but thankfully there's been so much archival material over the years that it 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 would have been great to get new information from them. Right. But, you know, I, I reached out to the to the estate early on. Um, obviously, the last chapter in the book is about CJ, uh, Big and Faith's son. Uh, we, we've established a good, you know, rapport over the years. And he's somebody that I think very highly of. And he's always been gracious with this time for me. Um, he, he was definitely appreciative of me writing this book on his father because he learned a lot of things about his dad um, over the course of it. And that that humbled the hell out of me. Yeah, that's got to be the highest compliment right there. Like, you're giving him yeah. new info on his own father, which you would think would, again, would be just, there's so much out there already. But the fact that you were able to add to his own context of who his father was, like, that's, <laughs> you succeeded. You you don't have to, you don't even have to sell a book to be a success on that front. <laughs> right, yeah. And I think about people just his age, because CJ is 25, which is wild, because he's older than his dad was at the time of his death. Like, if if CJ picks up that book and reads it and be like, damn, I didn't know this. Or I didn't realize it was like this. Just imagine how many people his age and younger are going to say the same thing. So, uh, but I, I knew it'd be tough getting this state, but I, I reached out to this state earlier and I let them know what I was doing and they were aware of the book. Uh, but my main thing I wanted them to understand was like, yo, this is not some like money grab or a hit piece that's trying to like 
you know, devalue your son or your friend or your father or your cousin or your, your best friend's legacy. Like, no, I'm here to do this thing authentically. I'm going to tell the truth. And, you know, there were some parts about his life that were uncomfortable, but we got to talk about them. But it's not going to be something something that was ever done with like ill intent or to discredit him or uh, to d- demean him or defame him by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, I think they understood that. I haven't heard anything negative from him, so I, I, I'm taking that as a as a as a as a good sign as well. I mean, I'd be surprised if there was anything negative to say about it. I mean, it's look, it's it's a it's a story that adds a new yeah. layer to the discussion about Biggie, right? It's a book that actually adds to what we already know out there. And as somebody who was a lifelong yeah. fan, like you said, I grew up with Biggie. You know, like I. I remember, I literally remember where I was when I found out he he died. Uh My father's the one who actually told me when I was getting ready to go to school, uh, my senior year of high school that morning. So, you know, as somebody who has been a lifelong fan, somebody who still gets misty listening to Biggie and I get mad about what we lost because what he could have become, you know, I'm, the story is still compelling. Like, even as I'm listening to it and reading, I'm like, it's still a compelling story. Like, even after knowing all the information that I know about him, like reading new stuff and still even I get so mad about the whole Tupac Biggie part of this. I get so pissed and I still care like this stuff can still be solved. Like at the end of the book, they'll both still be here and all will be okay. I get so mad about it, Um, but I still care. And I think that's probably what comes across. Like it's still a story to care about. Man, one of the things that was was really important for me, you just mentioned Biggie and Pac. um, and obviously you've read that part of the book, but I was like, yo, I don't want people to think that this is a book about Biggie and Tupac because both of their legacy legacies are strong enough to stand on their own. But like, let's be real. They're always going to be uh, intertwined, always, and connected, tied always tied together. And I think over the years, especially as we've had like more and more intense and in-depth conversation about, you know, the value of black lives and, you know, how we see things. I feel like Biggie and Pac have kind of been subjected to just being like, oh, these two guys had a crazy beef and then lost their lives in a very tragic manner. In, in tragic manners. Like, yes, those things absolutely happen and they absolutely have to be part of the story. But even before all that, man, there was an intense and beautiful friendship between those guys. Like, I want the love and the brotherhood uh, between them to get just as much you know, acclaim and just as much uh, coverage as everything that happened after Pac got shot at Quad Studios. You know what I mean? And I, I think that was that I think that was important for me to to showcase the origins of that friendship, just how deep it ran, and just how loyal they were to each other. Because eventually, we're going to get to the parts where, of course, hit them up, and you know, they run into each other at the source uh, the Soul Train Awards. Uh, in 96. And that, that was important for me because I, I I think when we just like define them as beef and death, we're kind of sh- where we're stripping them of their humanity. And like those two dudes had, they, they lived lives. They weren't here for a long time, but they lived a lot of life in the little time that yeah. they did that. You know that, I mean, listen, I'm not trying to tell you what you need to be working on next, but maybe, maybe there's a, there's a next project right there that no, there's never enough discussion about their actual friendship, right? Yeah. We have the free, we have yeah. the famous freestyles. We got a couple pictures, but you know mm-hmm. how like there's like the South Side with you, like like movie yeah. about Obama and Michelle, like their date, or like the the um the Miles Davis movie that's like a yeah. really just kind of like a day in the life yeah. of my like maybe fine. we need that. We need that movie. We need that that film about like a yeah. date, like the Biggie and Pac friendship we don't story get, because yeah, we, don't we don't get any get. of that. Um. It never, it just doesn't exist anywhere. Like everything, everybody has to mention that because it's true, but because of the other stuff that really overshadowed the rest of it, I feel like we get lost in the fact that by all accounts, like everybody who was around, they were legit, like friends, they genuinely valued each. And you, you, you spend a lot of time talking about that. Like they legitimately valued one another and like respected each other and liked each other in a way that, you know, like we could have, it could have been amazing if they ever gotten an opportunity to, uh, to, I don't know. Yeah, it could have been, man. Like their friendship is a footnote, which is which is unfortunate. But you know, like while while we're here, people like us, while we're here, there's always ways to to change that moving forward. And um, I don't know, you may have just given me an idea for for something. I it may not be the next project. But it, it it it's something I would be interested in working on. Now, I'm a, I'm gonna wait on that because I think I mean based on all the story, t- the different types of stuff that you've done, I think you I think you could knock that out. 
are there any like fun stories about putting this book together that you have? Like, like, is there any overarching memory that really sits with you? Oh, man. Sits with you about uh, putting this together? There's so many. Uh, there was one um, where I was talking to, I believe it was yeah, Maddie C. And, you know, he was just, just telling me stories about, because um, Maddie C would get all the new music for the source and he would review it. Like, my, this is well before the internet. Right. Kids of the internet will never know about the days of actually having to wait for a release date. There was a really cool story he told about he got the advanced version of the chronic. And so he's sitting at his brownstone in Brooklyn and he's smoking. He was like, yo, let me call Big. Let, let me let him listen to this because he knew Big. He had the demo tape at that point, but Big was still in the streets at that. You know, he was doing what he had to do in the streets, but right. everybody knew Big was rapping by then because everybody heard the demo. And Maddie C was about to put him in, uh, you know, the unsigned height column. But he was like, yo, Big, come over to my house. I got something I want you to listen to. And so they're 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 over there. They're sitting there smoking. And he's like, what is this? He was like, yo, this Dr. Dre's new album. And he was like, word? Dre got a solo album? Because Big was a fan of everybody. This whole East Coast, West Coast thing will lead people to believe that he only listened to people from New York and that's it. Like, right. one of Big's favorite albums was Freaky Tales by Too Short. As you can probably come to imagine. So he he loved that. He loved Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Right. It makes um, a lot of sense. He loved UGK. Um, he listened to Outcast a lot while he was recording um the putting the finishing touches on Ready to Die. When Maddie C caught him over there, they're smoking and they're basically high to their mind. And Big is listening to this and he's just sitting back in his chair, like got the blunt in his hand, but he's not even smoking the blunt. The blunt is basically burning. And he was like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Like, what is this? And I don't know if it's funny, but it, it's more so just like one of those like really intimate stories about Big that I just never heard before. And it's just like Big got got basically halfway through uh, the chronic and he was like, dog, I got to go home. He's like, if, if, if this is what music is going to sound like moving forward, he was like, I got to step my game up. He was like, because everything that comes out after this has to be just as good, if not better than this. Other than that, you don't need to release music. He was like, I got to step my game up. And it's very it's very rare that you hear a story about Big saying, like, I got to step my game up. And yeah. this is well before he became the the star. Right. And so it was, it was, I, I really love that story that Maddie C told me about Big hearing The Chronic for the first time, like three or four months before it came out. Bro, I still remember hearing The Chronic for the first time. So <laughs> I... I <laughs> I was in it's 92. I'm in eighth grade at that point, I think, or seventh, eighth grade. I, I still remember that. I still remember my tape. And everybody felt the same way. Even as little kids, we're like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, Before we cut to a break, I do want to ask you, you know, you mentioned earlier, but like this book has come out, the releases, it's been, you know, it's been in the world for, uh, I think, almost two weeks now. How is that? How does that feel for you, man? Because this yeah. is, listen, as somebody who is a, a writer, who uh, sure. looks forward to to putting a book out into the world? I'm always excited when I see people. And when I, I I went to um on May 11th, I went to Barnes and Noble, and I went to Black bookstores here. I have a relationship with Black bookstores in DC, so I go check them all out. Now I go pick up copies everywhere. But I love walking into bookstores and seeing people, seeing the books from people I know, and I'm like, yo, I know this guy. Like this is somebody I know. These are my people. And I'm able to do that so much more and more nowadays. Like I could go in there and be like, y'all know this person, this person, like it's like yeah. albums. It's like, like looking at albums, like, yo, I know the person that dropped this. Like, how do you feel, man? Like, how does it feel to have this out in the world? You know, such yeah. a monumental thing. Cause this ain't just a book about anybody. This is biggie. Like you are about to be basically creating yeah. a definitive work about a definitive artist. And I mean, that's amazing. Bro, it's still surreal to me. And I remember when you posted something, I, I believe it was on Instagram when you posted that. It was like, yo, it's dope walking into these bookstores knowing like, yo, I can point out like six or seven people I know know personally, like they're in my phone. For me, I, I felt the same way. And it's just like, yo, man, we like, it feels great seeing people that you've known for a long time, who you've known are great at what they do and get the success that you know they deserve. And so just walking into like mahogany books and seeing my book with with yours or with uh danielle smith's or david dennis i'm like yo this is really crazy it's, it's just like how panama said it would be like i start i can point out books that i know the author and uh 
I never want to lose that feeling. Like I never want to lose the feeling of what I've had for like these last two weeks since my book came out. And I love seeing people post pictures on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or whatever social media outlet they they like to use. Like, yo, just cop this book, just got this book. Can't wait to dive in. And it's just one of those things. It makes that writing is a very lonely process and you question yourself a billion times over it. And I want to take this moment and this feeling with me as I work on whatever projects I have in the future. It's like, no, the, the end result and the payment, if you put your heart into it, it's going to pay you back in ways that, you know, in like tenfold. So I, it, I love it, man. I love it. And I, I, I never wanted to forget what this feeling at this very moment feels like. Kudos to you, brother. I mean, <laughs> hand clap, dog. Like, I, I could not be prouder. Hearing that from you, that means a lot, man. Like, I, I, I love the, the, uh, the basically the overwhelmingly positive reviews I've been getting about it. Every now and then you'll have like a, 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 a person on Twitter with like a dog, Abby, saying like, I hate this book. It sucks. And I'm like, I, well... If you bought it, read then, it. Hey, yeah. right. I hope you bought it and then, and then didn't like it. So, um, but no, to hear it from people um, who I, I deeply, deeply admire and respect and consider a friend, I, I want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, that means a lot. So thank you, bro. I, I appreciate that. Seriously. Yeah, man. All right. We're going to take a real quick break here and we're going to come back with some black fashions, some black recommendations, and we're going to find out where you can get Justin's book where you can find his work and uh, all that here, right here on Dear Culture. All right, we're back here on Dear Culture. We're having our conversation with Justin Tinsley, the author of the book, It Was All a Dream, Biggie in the World That Made Him. And we just had a wonderful discussion about the inception of the book, creating the book, writing it, the release of the book. Basically, everything I wanted to know, and I think that everything people need to know about this amazing book that I've had the opportunity to read. Uh, I'm almost finished, but as a fan of Biggie, as a fan of Justin, as a fan of you, like it's a compelling read. I'm enjoying it. And frankly, that's what I look for in books that I'm reading. Like, I want to actually enjoy the thing so that I can get to the end because ain't nothing worse than reading a book about somebody I care about and I cannot make it through the book because it just isn't well done or it's like, the story isn't that good or the way, you know, it's amazing how that can happen, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And I'm glad my book isn't that for you. So I appreciate that. <laughs> this book is a, it's a page turner like a mug, bro. It's a page turner like a mug. And I, that's, that's another one of those high compliments that you can give an author. Um, so this segment of the, of, of Dear Culture is the part where I like to have fun with the, with the guests and talk about a couple of things. So, nope. We always like mm-hmm. to say in our community that black people are not a monolith. It's one of our favorite sayings. Well, what I have come to find out about this segment, which we call Black Fessions, which are basically black confessions, confessions about your blackness, effectively, is that this is so true because the things that people share on this segment, typically, now people usually talk about movies. and stuff. I'm going to have to start telling people they can't talk about movies anymore. Everybody wants to tell me movies they haven't seen. The amount of people that haven't seen Friday is frankly embarrassing. So I just, I can't let people do that anymore. Yeah, it's it's a lot of people never saw Friday. I don't I don't understand yeah. that. But either way, you, sir, though, you do. You have a black fashion. And <laughs> I, I saw this in advance. I it's going to be this is going to be a fun conversation. So please, please, sir, share with us your black fashion. Justin Tinsley is on the black fashion stage. Go ahead. Go ahead and share your black fashion. OK, here's the backstory. So it all started over quarantine. It has nothing to do with the book. All started over quarantine. There's no sports on TV except for The Last Dance. There's no music coming out because why would you release music in a quarantine? You can't do anything with it. And I started watching this series off the recommendation of my wife. And she told me she started watching it years ago and she laughs. She thinks it's hilarious. And Everything I knew about this show would not, my blackness would not allow me to like the show because of the history it had with another show that was super black. I'm going to come right out and say it. Friends is funny as hell, dog. I'm sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. I was so, yo, Panama, I was so (laughs) adamant, like, 
Hell nah. I, I was like CB4 and I'm black, y'all. And I'm black, y'all. I'm like, I ain't watching no friends. Not after what they did to Living Single. Living Single is the superior show. And for the record, I still love Living Single. I watch all the episodes on repeat, rerun. But, and then, and this is the messed up part too, because Friends is basically aired from like nine to like four every night on Nickelodeon. Yeah. So they, they're getting those syndication checks. And I'm like, some nights it don't be anything yep. on TV. And she was like, just watch a couple of episodes with me. I watched the first episode and I chuckled. And I'm like, and I'm trying to keep my laughter in. And I'm like, damn, that's pretty funny. Next thing I know, it's like four or five episodes later. I'm like, yo, I might actually like this. And like a couple of months later, I'm starting to see episodes that I've seen again, like three and four times. I'm like, yo, I'm still laughing at them. And I'm like, yo, man. I like Friends. Really? I'm I'm not, I'm like you, bro. I actually like Friends. I went to a Friends series finale party. I I actually went. Now I had I put on a bandana, and I definitely had on some shirt that was proved that I was down for the cause. But I I enjoy Friends. I always like. I still have I have favorite episodes of Friends. Like I I genuinely enjoy it, bro. Like in like the six main characters, like yo, they're all funny in like their own way. And I'm like yo, yep. this is a. I'm like. I was invested in the relationship of Ross and Rachel. Like, Yo. I actually cared. Yo, you- I wanted them to work out. Like, that's so... I'm Listen, I'm with you. I love Living Single. I'm with you. Living Single, GOAT show. I'm I'm, I'm all there. But I, I really... I, I like Friends. Yeah, we we, we, we definitely did not give uh, Friends the, 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 the shake that, that it deserved, I think. Like, I, I, I'm with you. I got I got favorite episodes. Uh, you know, the, the joint where they were trying to move the, the couch up the stairs and Ross was like, pivot? Pivot! 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 Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! I'm telling you, yo, the joint is hilarious, man. Like, I it is. It, I was it is funny. Last night, so yeah, that's that's my black fashion. Like, I am, I am a huge Friends fan. Oh, thank you for sharing with the people. I'm sure more people probably agree with you than you think, even though the, the internet would have you think we all hate friends is just like a general rule. But the truth is, it's a good show. I enjoy it. Yeah, it, was, it was, and I'm unapologetic about that. So um, but since you confess something, I'm also going to give you an opportunity to recommend some blackness to put back into the world really? so that, you know, we can we can we can write whatever whatever wrong this black fashion <laughs> may have done for yeah. your for your reputation. So black recommendation being a recommendation by for and about something black black culture whatever it may be so sir what is your black recommendation yeah man uh and and, and it's just kind of a par for the course of what this conversation has been like uh for its entirety um i've always supported black bookstores i've always loved the energy that i had when i walk in there people greet me and they're always down to you know basically help me however i need but uh, working with black bookstores on this recent book tour that I've done, uh, it's given me an even deeper appreciation than what I had before. And I didn't even know that was possible. So my, my black mendation is just, you know, support black bookstores as much as you can. If they don't have a book that, that you want, just tell them and they'll order it for, for, uh, for you and just purchase from them. Not saying that you shouldn't ever order anything from Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or whatever the case may be, but just give them the same type of support that you would give these like huge chains because they're they're not just places with books. They're they're pillars of the community. And when um I was going through my publicity planning for for this book, I reached out to Mahogany Books and they more they were more than welcome to accommodate anything that I wanted to do. They 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 made me feel like uh, I was, you know, working on my 10th book and I was like this internationally acclaimed Arthur. They treated me like uh, they gassed me up. And I and I really appreciate that when I needed it because I had no clue what I was going through. And um, Greenlight Bookstore up in Brooklyn, we went to the one on Fulton Street. They showed a lot of love. And so support the black bookstores, man. Like they 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 we all need our help, but they're they're, they're so important in terms of just the spirit and soul of a community. And uh yeah keep it black <laughs> yeah shout and shouts out to mahogany books that's here in washington dc where both of us live um i do a book club with them so we always have a good time and uh you know look, look the the store is owned and operated by two hip-hop heads yeah. and 
yeah. you know, Derek, who I know you, I, I wasn't able to make the talk, but I know you, you did the talk with Derek and Derek and I have had some of the most uh, loudest, lengthy hip hop debates ever. Like we literally get into full out arguments. I have kept that store from doing business on occasion just because he and I are in the midst of a full argument about something. You know, I walk in with a hot take about something. The next thing you know, hours go by and we're still arguing about something. So uh, shout out to Mahogany Books here in D.C. Love that space. Great, great people, man. Great people running that store. Uh, yeah, De Derek, Derek is my man. We supposed to do a podcast about this book uh, at some point. Whenever he's ready, I'm down to do it. But yeah, he 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 definitely likes his hip hop a certain way. I will say that. Absolutely. All right. Well, tell people where they can find the book, where they can find your work, like what you're up to. Like, please let us know how we can be in the Justin Tinsley business. Hey, man. Look, I, I like that business. Uh, where you can find my work, just piggybacking off our last topic, uh, go to your local uh, independent Black-owned bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it. Uh, um, if uh, Obviously, it, it sounds cliche to say wherever books are sold, but li literally wherever books are sold, that thing literally. is there. It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, the audio book is out. The audio book is, is incredible. Shout out to Dion Graham, who did the narration for that. So it, it, it's it's everywhere. And it, it, you can also find the book. I, I got links to it on my Twitter and Instagram. Uh, th those are it's just my name at Justin Tinsley. I need my little cousin to teach me how to really use TikTok so I can, you know, uh, tap into that market. I don't know either, bro. I, I don't know. I just watch the videos. Um, and, you know, for 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 the for us oldest geezers out there, I still do have a Facebook profile. Um, so. Yeah, I'm 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 everywhere where I can be at all times. Well, look, brother, I appreciate you coming on here to Dear Culture. Thank you for sharing about your process, about uh putting together a book. Thank you for putting the book together, for checking your emails and and adding to the culture. I'm a big fan of books about hip hop that aren't just you know, that that are about the culture as a as as a whole. Because I think the more books that we can have about hip hop and individuals and the culture at large, like right the better it will be for the culture because sure. hip hop, you know, where it's, it's clearly here to stay. hasn't gone anywhere and there's only more stories that could be told. So, you know, thank you for, for your contribution to yeah, the game, buddy. to the writing game, to the hip hop game, to, to, to those of us who came up in that like blog writing space, you know what I'm saying? Like it's wonderful to see us all level that up into something that's legitimate career, career wise. Like we actually all made it. I'm just, I'm proud, man. You have to come back. We'll talk more about that at some point because uh, that's that's definitely a whole conversation in and of itself. Like the whole blog era, what it actually that. did to the journalism as a whole, <laughs> how it changed everything. And uh, and thank you to everybody who's checking us out here, at Dear Culture. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, please give us a five star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, share with everyone you know. Um, thanks to Justin. I'm Panama. You know, please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. Dear Culture Podcast is an original production brought to you by the Grio Black Podcast Network. Our show is produced by myself, Panama Jackson, and Crystal Grant, edited by Cameron Blackwell. Taji Sr. is our logistic associate producer, and Regina Griffin is our managing editor of podcasts. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Have a black one.